Hello and welcome to Systematically, your weekly theology podcast. I'm John Heaps. I'm speaking to you from my walk-in closet in Austin, Texas. I'm here with Ryan Hemmer. Hey, Ryan. Hey, everybody. And Robin Beret. Hey, Robin. Morning. And we have a guest today. We have Dr. Joe Gordon. Hey, Joe. Hey, John. Ryan. Robin. <laughs> uh, Joe is Joe's with us from Boston for another uh, another week or two, I believe. It. What you doing in Boston, Joe? I've been doing a postdoctoral fellowship in the Lonergan Institute at Boston College this semester. Right on. And what have, what have you been doing with your time in Boston? Well, I am writing my second book, um, which will be uh, the Cascade Companion to uh, the Life and Work of Bernard Lonergan. Terrific. Very excited about that. Um, and then uh, and we've got Joe on to talk about his first book from Notre Dame Press. And uh, he's going to, we're going to, we'll get into that in just a, a minute. But first, we're going to do our guest questions to get to know him a little bit. The name of Joe's book, by the way, I should, uh, should not be remiss, is Divine Scripture and Human Understanding, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible. Uh, and we'll put a, a link with a discount code in it. Um, in the uh, in the show notes, so you can look for that. So, um, but first things first, let's do some guest questions. So, so Robin, you've got a question for Joe. I do, and actually, um, it's the same question I ask almost every time, uh, and I'm not even sorry for that because I think it's the perfect question because it involves a bunch of humiliation, which is always right. funny, mm-hmm. but not too much humiliation where like it's like soul crushing to the person who has to answer because you can answer with something that like you know didn't junior high or in like elementary school um and and it's like well i was young you know and i didn't know better so uh, you know uh, maybe maybe i mean or maybe you did or John. maybe you're grant kaplan and you buy a crop top in a thrift store yeah maybe you're grant kaplan yeah after um, tenure. after <laughs> tenure that's right after tenure but you know what you know what the great thing about that is like um yeah, he just owned it, I think. Yeah. Anyways. Forthright, so, that Grant Kaplan. So, Joe, I just, I want to know, what is your worst fashion choice, faux pas, whatever? It can be a one-off event or it can be a stage of your life. And um, we'd like you to get as descriptive as possible. Well, it would, I mean, I don't think I can pick uh, a specific uh, one-off kind of thing. Uh, basically, the entirety of middle school could could go uh, go here I think well uh, the most significant bad choices there uh, were uh, Hawaiian shirts um, and also uh, lots of camouflage I just I just want to know when you wore the the Hawaiian shirts sometimes yeah yeah. I just want to know like when you wore the Hawaiian shirts you look like like, a magic guy were you like (laughs) off and did you have a huge mustache because then it could work that's true. No, uh, I wished that I could have a huge, huge mustache. I wanted a goatee, actually, which would have really completed it. You know, like the Mark McGuire goatee. There you go. Like, with camo pants and a Hawaiian With camo shirt. pants and a Hawaiian shirt. Yeah. <laughs> and a shell necklace. Wouldn't, oh, no, wouldn't I that have made you like a, uh, like a Southern California megachurch preacher? Like, isn't that the official <laughs> uniform? At least, at least a youth pastor. Yeah. Youth pastors may be what I was shooting for. Okay. Really. There you go. Aiming I mean, high. 
That's, that's what every 12 year old wants to look like. Yeah. That's, that's uh, terrific. Also with the uh, crown of thorn tattoos oh. around my bicep, <laughs> I didn't, mm-hmm. didn't do that. And I wouldn't do a necklace either. No accessories, just Hawaiian shirts and camo pants. That's, um, I'm just that's... curious. What, what shoes did you wear with that? Just generic sneakers, tennis shoes, probably. Awesome. In all likelihood, ones that didn't match. Of course, it would be impossible to match anything. To I was going to say. Any of that. <laughs> what, what could that possibly mean? Liberty print shoes, maybe. Probably Adidas Sambas. Oh, that's a classic, though. That's before yeah, I played Joe, soccer. Joe would have been the one person actually using them to play indoor soccer, I suppose. No, no, that was before. No? That was before soccer. Okay. Presaged. Uh, that's terrific. All right, Ryan, you're up. So my my first inclination was to um, put Joe on the spot by turning around the standard question that Ezra Klein concludes his show with. He always asks, what are three books you would recommend our listeners read? And I wanted Joe to answer the question, what are three books you would recommend no one read ever? Uh, But he assured me all of his answers were far too mean to uh, broadcast in public. And so I'm going to spare him that that risky... monologue there so instead i'm going to ask what i hope is an is a is a less mean but much more embarrassing question which is what is your favorite adam sandler movie now notice that presumes that you've seen not just one but multiple adam sandler movies who amongst and that you've developed some criteria for discriminating between them such that one can be better or best relative to the others so I have seen um, multiple Adam Sandler movies, and uh, I, I would I would have to say, upon reflection, that uh, Happy Gilmore would be my favorite. Right? It's this heartwarming story of a idiot hockey player trying to save his grandma <laughs> by playing golf. Um, I mean, it's right, just right. as old as time. A tale, tale as old as time. Yeah. Um, a a remake of a little-known Shakespeare play. Right, yeah. <laughs> How could uh, you go wrong with that? That's exactly, classic material. I don't uh, know, but it doesn't have Billy Idol in it. That, that does set you back, I guess. It does have Bob Barker, though. True. And they get into a fight. <laughs> the price is Apparently. wrong. Yeah. How, wait, John time Cena out. Too, Hold on. Right? Have you not seen Happy Gilmore? No. Wait, what? No, I've, no, I've never seen it. What, what are they doing in Canada in terms of I mean, like upbringing and education that you've never seen Happy Gilmore? Oh, no, it's everyone, the hockey one, Robin. I know. <laughs> I don't know anyone who hasn't seen it. Like, and then it, so then it kind of became a thing, you know, like everyone oh, was so obsessed with it. And yeah. it was like, ah, you know, then I like, and then it was kind of like when everyone was so obsessed with it, I was like, you know, I don't know that I'm going to see it. And then after the fact, I just haven't gotten around. You know what I mean? Like it's, I never, when it's Saturday night and I want to watch something, I never just think, man, I should go back and watch Happy Gilmore and like fill in that hole in my, in my heart and soul. No, I think she's right not to think that. (laughs) Yeah. 
That's okay it, because I've seen The Wedding Singer, which I'm pretty sure is the best Adam Sandler movie. Well, and the first of the Barrymore trilogy. Yeah. It has its merits, for sure. I mean, it's certainly north of, what was that, Little Nicky or whatever that was called? <laughs> Yikes. Okay. Um, and then I'm, as usual, pilfering from the Bombshell podcast. Uh, they ask a, a new question that I really like, which is, if you could pitch a, a TV series or movie to Netflix and they would produce it, what would your pitch be? Well, so, um, so some of you guys know this about me, uh, John and, and Ryan in particular, uh, but I'm, a, uh, I'm what is known as an outdoor theologian. Um, <laughs> they're indoor theologians. Uh, most theologians are indoor theologians. I'm an outdoor theologian. Yeah, like indoor and outdoor cats. Right, exactly. Um, and um, as so an outdoor you're a theologian who prefers to pee in the woods. Yes. Yeah, I mean, you could, could say that, yeah. Uh, and so I would, I would uh, want to do some, some kind of documentary uh, about nature, uh, I think. And um, I would want to focus on uh, people's experience of nature transforming their perspective. Hmm. Um, and, and not just, um, like, the beauty of nature, aesthetically. Uh, that would be a... a a dimension of it, but but I'm thinking about um, how education, um, like helping people understand the ecology of, of a place or the the role of certain um, animals in 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 their local ecology, uh, could shape their perspective. Um, so, strange thing about me is that uh, I uh, like. Uh, reptiles and amphibians a lot, and um, I've gotten some cha- some opportunities recently to do education uh, uh, on reptiles and amphibians, and seeing people's perspective change um, through talking about the role of specific animals, maybe creepy crawlies that people don't appreciate in the ecology of a place, is a rich and rewarding thing. And so um, I would I would want to do something like that, a documentary focused on transformative experiences in, in nature. That's a great idea. I uh, it, it never fails to make me smile when I'm scrolling through my Facebook feed um, to see occasionally where you have commented on um, some herpetological Facebook group uh, identifying snakes and other uh, reptiles that people find in their planter boxes or whatever um it really it it fills me with joy in every case joe is something giving latin names in every case yeah (laughs) yeah just something of an accomplished herpetologist it's great um you would have loved uh on a work site oh i guess two years ago um they had to um for my husband's work they had to remove an old house and um in the basement there was like about i don't know couple thousand um little uh like milk snakes oh yeah eastern milk snakes yeah yeah and so they um yeah so he just like they had to like move them all out and then when they kind of i thought you were gonna say so they had to just move (laughs) (laughs) yeah we just told them like we gave them eviction notices no and so like and so i got pictures and then so they moved them out of this old house and then when they um with kind of the development they 
created a little ecosystem for them and moved them all back in. And so Neil just got like stick, like snake after snake in the ground. Yeah, that's Pretty fantastic. Awesome. Uh, that is uh, that is something that Canadians would do. Uh, <laughs> and it's beautiful, um, and it is something that Americans sh- should do. But if if it had happened o- over here. Uh, the the uh, result might have been quite different. No, somebody you'd be at the Ace Hardware going, "Do you have any milk snake spray I can spray on these milk snakes?" <laughs> yeah. yeah, we're jerks. Um, <laughs> all right, Joe. So um, let's get into the the meat of it here. So this, uh, you wrote this book, Divine Scripture and Human Understanding. It's a systematic theology of the Christian Bible, and this is uh uh. uh came out of your dissertation that you did at Marquette, where Ryan and I uh, both are wrapping up. Um, so what's it about? So the, it's all there in the title. Um, uh, it's, it's a singular, a uh, indirect article, systematic theology of the Christian Bible. Uh, and so uh, by systematics, you guys talk a lot about systematics on this podcast. The titular uh, systematic. Titular, yeah. Um, I mean, a, an account in direct discourse uh, about what it is that the Bible is. Uh, what, it, what is its uh, nature? What are its purposes? Uh, from within the perspective of Christian faith, uh, what, what is this book and what is it for? Um, so why would I write this uh this is it's an important uh initial question um if you have spent any time in the theological academy you know that there are very different approaches to christian scripture of course there's a historical critical approaches that uh try to measure up to the particularity of the texts of scripture to really get their uh, ancient distinctiveness in order uh, to understand what Paul was saying uh, to the to the Romans, how the Romans would have received his his writing, uh, to to kind of imagine oneself into an ancient context. So historical critical approaches uh, approach the text with reference to these sorts of questions and challenges, um, but there are also contextual approaches. Uh, which read scripture from the perspective of um, situations in in the contemporary world, uh, which return to the text hoping to hear a word from God, a liberative, transformative word for God, um, for the sake of uh, oppressed peoples. Uh, And then there are also theological approaches to the text. Uh, Christians have always come to scripture to ask the question, what is what does this have to say about God? Uh, what what uh, what do we learn about God from reading this? And um, there's no real clear idea about what to do with these different approaches. Um, and often people who find themselves in the different approaches uh, don't talk to folks in the other ones. Um, and I see this as a problem. I see uh, the approaches is is complementary, um, but also uh, each each approach ignores certain issues and challenges, and those issues and challenges should not be ignored. Um, and so, what the book does is is tries to give an account of the nature and purpose of Scripture 
um, that both reflects the gains of those diverse approaches and addresses issues that are underemphasized by them. Um, and and there's, a, there's an exigence from Christian faith for doing this. Um, it, it, uh, it's important for Christians to, to think about what it is that scripture is. And uh, so the book, uh, the book does that, that work. One approach to, to thinking about the nature and purposes of scripture in our contemporary situation uh, for the sake of uh, understanding. Hmm. You've got a nice, uh, Joe is kind enough, kind enough to send us a, a summary of, of the text because I haven't had a chance to read the, the thing yet, though I, had, I think I looked at some sections early on when it was still a dissertation. Um, but you say here, the overall contribution of divine scripture, the book, is to give an account of the nature and purposes of the Christian Bible in direct discourse which both affirms the achievements of historical critical scholarship, traditional theological approaches to Christian scripture, and the reading practices of contextual or liberationist approaches, and addresses key issues characteristically underemphasized or ignored by those respective approaches. Um, that's hugely ambitious. Yeah. Um, <laughs> as, as the listener might note. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> kind of insane, really. <laughs> so but the but but let's go back to the title then right so you've got this sort of big ambitious unifying integrating uh intervention into the the literature as it exists but let's go back to the title because i want to drill down i think the reason that that's not a fool's errand is because of the um to borrow a sort of lonergan phrase right? the, the abstractive viewpoint you take makes it control um and so your subtitle, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible. Um, so implicitly then you're asking the question, what is the Christian Bible? But you're asking it from within a particular methodological approach, uh, a systematic theology. So can you say, tell us a little bit about how you think about what a systematic theology is, does, and then we, and then maybe we can circle back to okay. So then, how does that control your inquiry into what the Christian Bible is? Yeah. Um, so, my understanding of systematics comes uh, from my reading of, of Lonergan's work. Um, and for Lonergan, systematic theology is one functional specialty um, among uh, seven others, or eight, depending on who you talk to. Uh, it is one thing that that theologians do. And the, the thing that theologians do in systematic theology is they seek uh, to offer an understanding of doctrines at the level of the theologian's time. Um, so it's one thing to uh, confess Christian faith doctrinally, for instance, to, to say the Nicene Creed or the Apostles' Creed. Uh, but it's another thing to understand what in the world those statements, those judgments in the creed could possibly mean. And systematics gives an understanding of what those statements mean, an understanding of what those judgments are about, and uh, an understanding of how those judgments relate to other judgments, uh, philosophical judgments, judgments about uh, history. Um, and so this approach. Um, 
gives a way of thinking about scripture um, that that is actually or can be actually quite focused. Um, so Christians characteristically believe specific things about scripture itself, have specific judgments about what the Bible is. Uh, it's inspired by the Holy Spirit. Um, it is the written word of God. Um, it is useful for, for God's work. Uh, and so my approach is to, to focus on those judgments in relationship to other distinctive, constitutive Christian judgments about God's work, uh, about human beings, human nature, and human history, um, and also um, in their relationship to, to judgments about what the text actually is, what it has been historically. Um, and so if you, if you focus on those specific judgments, you can build a context for, for locating Scripture, uh, for thinking about its place in the work of God in history, uh, for thinking about it, its place as a result of uh, specific human activities, human decisions, uh, as a participant in human culture. Um, and, um, and so when you locate Scripture in those places, you can have a better idea of, of what it is that, that this, uh, this book is and what it's about and what it's for. That's really interesting to me too. The the way that um, you you keep you keep saying this book, this right? book, yeah. Um, and, and one of the things that you focus on uh, later in your book is script, scripture as, or or the Bible, maybe more precisely, as a technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that and that seems to me so. so if if your understanding, your sort of Lonerganian understanding of what a systematic theology is. An effort to understand uh, these articulations of belief, and so as an effort to make sense of these sort of basic Christian beliefs about Scripture, that's the sort of formal element. There seems to be a kind of material element to what you're doing too, insofar as um, you consider the Bible as a book and and as book as a kind of technology. Um, and 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 we're in an age where when you say technology, people typically think what you mean is digital technology. Um, though in our age, the the digital technology is not irrelevant. Um, but here you mean technology in a wider sense. So, so how is the Bible a, a technology in your view? Yeah, that's a great, uh, a great question. So it's a really important uh, aspect of the work. Uh, there's a whole chapter, chapter five, that's devoted to um, scripture as, as technology. Um, so um, the first thing to note is that um, uh, the Christian Bible has a, a pretty uh, fascinating um, and difficult to get a handle on history. Um, it does not fall from heaven. Um, and um, uh, so in order to understand scripture, you need to have an account of, uh, of its history, an account of um, the processes behind its uh, production uh, and, it, and its transmission. And uh, so that chapter gives an account of, of its technology. Uh, there's this uh, wonderful quotation by uh, Rudolf Volderholzer, who, who wrote a really brief biography on uh, Henri de Lubac, the French, 20th century French Jesuit. Um, and he says, uh, the earliest Christians, uh, the earliest Christian martyrs, 
died for their faith in Christ without having ever held a New Testament in their hands. Um, which I think is uh, just uh, fascinating to think about. So they died without ever having held a New Testament in their hands. Well, what is a New Testament? A New Testament is a, is a collection of books, um, no matter what ecclesial tradition you're in, uh, there are 27 of them, from the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, uh, then Acts, and Paul's letters, the other epistles, and finally Revelation. Um, we think about it uh, as, as a collection that's, that's together. Uh, but those books have their own histories of origination and transmission, um, and they're slowly brought together under one cover. Um, eventually brought to, together under, under one cover as a book. But Christians did not start off with, with books. They started off, uh, as the rest of ancient Judaism, with scrolls and synagogues. And so Christians moved from scrolls to book. And that's a very significant technological shift. Um, you can't have a, a, the Bible as a book before the possibility of a book exists. Um, and so uh, th that process is behind the formation of, of Scripture, the transition from scroll to, to codex, from, from a roll to, to book. Um, and it reflects certain convictions about what Christian writings, what those New Testament writings are, are for, uh, what, their, what their purposes are. Um, but then there are also all kinds of other really interesting uh, facets of that history. Uh, Christians have always been okay with a translated and translatable set of scriptural texts. Uh, this is fascinating. Uh, this is not so in in other religious traditions. Um, in order to, um, to, to uh, read from the Torah in a synagogue, you have to learn Hebrew. Um, in order to participate in, in uh, the liturgical uh, worship in, uh, in a mosque, uh, you need Arabic. Uh, but Christians don't need to learn Koine Greek to be Christian. Uh, we, we read scripture in, in English or Spanish or French or whatever our native language is. The earliest Christians were already reading translations. Uh, over 95% of the quotations of the Old Testament present in the New Testament are translations of the Old Testament. They're not from Hebrew, they're Greek. So Christians are okay with translation. Um, so this is another interesting facet of, of its technological history. And, no, weren't, sorry. Yeah, go ahead. Weren't, weren't the Jews also okay with um, translation? Because didn't the quotations of the Old Testament in the New Testament come from the Septuagint? They did. Um, and uh, so there's a lot of fascinating history there whenever you think about the, the parting of the ways, so to speak, between uh, uh, Second Temple, within Second Temple Judaism, Christianity becoming kind of its own separate. Uh, faith. Um, that's, a, that's a very good point. At first, uh, there are obviously uh, uh, faithful Jews who were totally okay with translation. Philo of Alexandria, for instance, um, is thoroughly Hellenized, thoroughly Greek 
Um, and he writes in Greek and he quotes those ancient Jewish texts in Greek and he's totally fine with that. Um, but in, uh, in this parting of the ways between ancient Judaism and, and emerging Christian faith, eventually um, uh, the Jewish people mostly abandon those Greek texts um, kind of through a mutual uh, self-defining process. Um, so, so that was present, um, but eventually um, uh, ancient Judaism centers much more uh, specifically uh, on, on the Hebrew text. Uh, and so then you have the uh, uh, kind of the me uh, Masoretic standardization of the Hebrew text, um, you know, a few hundred years after the, the birth of Christianity. Um, and um, the Jewish, Jewish people uh, were not okay with the use of codex technology for the transmission of scripture. Um, so not, in, not until uh, the late Middle Ages does that become okay. Um, and to have a codex, you have to have every single book in the Hebrew, uh, ancient Hebrew scriptures together. You can't have part Bibles. It's all got to be together. And that's way, way late. Um, so, so there's different uh, assumptions and presuppositions about, about the text. Uh, but but, but um, you're right to point out, you know, at, at the beginning, some, some first century Jewish people certainly were okay with translation. Uh, but that doesn't become the case as the history progresses. So, there, so there's Is all these that, different... Oh, go ahead, Ryan. Well, I'm just wondering if that's a, if that's a function of discrete sort of theological judgments and trajectories or whether or not that's a kind of ex post facto um, way of uh, identifying oneself as distinct from a religious other. So, you know, when Christianity is still a second temple Jewish sect, um, those, those hard, hard line identity marker distinctions that, that those different book technologies denote would have been less important than later in the tradition where uh, identifying oneself as distinct from either um, the Jewish synagogue or the Christian churches is much more important, at least is assumed to be more important to one's identity. And so even things like book technology become a, an occasion for um, sort of bipartisan or, or uh, for polemic, right, for partisanship. Um, and so the theological judgments attached to those, but it seems like, like um, you know, it may, it may well be the case that the the, the differences are largely accidental and then the, the theological justifications sort of get built on top. Yeah. I, am I being too dismissive of that? No, I think that that's, that's spot on. I think that that's a very helpful way of putting it. Um, but you can see that those processes happening quite early um, sure. because you have, um, you have the standard Septuagint, so to speak, uh, which is a, there's a question about what that actually is. Um, because the letter of Aristeus, which is pre-Christian, um, 
uh, makes reference to the translation of just the Torah into Greek. Um, of course, there are all these other Old Testament books that get translated into Greek as well, and the early Christians adopt these. Uh, but even very early, the first and the second century, um, there are Jewish attempts to sort of take back the Greek uh, from from Christians. Um, there are the texts, uh, the, the translations by Aquila and Theodosian and Symmachus, uh, which are uh, responses to Christian use of those ancient Greek texts. So there's some of that kind of um, uh, self-definition against the other going on quite early. Um, you can see it in, in, in uh, the, the second century uh, apologists and, and Justin Martyrs in his dialogue with Trifo. And, um, so that, that um, I think that the way that you describe it is, 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 is right on, uh, but, it, but it starts happening remarkably early. Um, so. Well, and even within, within, you know, second temple Judaism itself, right. You have a lot of com competing notions of what Torah and temple mm -hmm. are and that in which they consist and where they are located. And so, I mean, the, I, you know, we don't need to do the, the Boccaccini schema or anything, yeah. but like, you know, there are, there are these distinct strands of tradition and what makes them distinct is largely a, a function of the their their view of sacred cosmology and priestly mediation mm -hmm. and revelation right yeah. and so um it's no wonder that as a as a yet still newer uh second temple strand of tradition emerges in the wake of uh the itinerant preacher from nazareth uh, those same kinds of, of um, arguments, even internal Jewish arguments, um, continue. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So, so, so this is uh, giving a, a sort of descriptive sense of um, that in which the, the technology consists. But I want to push you a little bit more on, but why is it a technology? Um, Right, it, it could be it could be considered merely as let's say artifact, right? And not all artifacts are technology. So, so um, what is the what is the techne um, for for which this is a technology? Yeah, uh, well, it's the human person um, healed uh, and elevated in their in their subjective capacities um, to know God, to love God. Uh, and to know and love all that God loves. Uh, that's, that's what scripture exists for. Uh, that's what its purpose is. So the, there's this famous text that um, everybody cites when they talk about the inspiration of scripture. Um, if, you, if you grew up in a Bible-centric tradition, uh, you know the text, uh, 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is God-breathed and useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Um, so um, you know, modern folks are obsessed with the, that God-breathed language, um, right? The, the divine authority of Scripture uh, gets expounded in all sorts of ways, um, particularly focusing on things like how it's 
inerrant and infallible and uh, those sorts of things. But the earliest Christians were much more interested in its usefulness. Um, It was useful for teaching, correcting, rebuking, and training in righteousness. Um, It was useful for, um, to to close the circle with what I said earlier, uh, it was useful for God's redemptive work in human persons. It was useful for God's redemptive work in human history. Uh, That's what the technology is for. Uh, It's a technology of of a self, of a soul. Um, And that judgment is everywhere in the the ancient uh, Christian discourse. And in in the church fathers, it comes up, uh, especially in Clement of Alexandria and and Origen, and uh, the Cappadocians and Augustine, and uh, it stays present uh, through through later history. Um, so at the beginning of um, uh, chapter four, I have this footnote, and um, uh, well, it's endnotes, the book's endnotes. But uh, I think I've got I collected like fifteen studies, uh, recent studies that people have done focusing on the pedagogical purposes, presuppositions about scripture as pedagogy in the church fathers. And I just kept finding more and more and more and more and more of these studies. Um, that's what the technology is for. Um, so one thing that I do um, is provide a different account of the self, of, of human nature, a human person, uh, than what is available in, in pre-modern approaches. Um, so uh, there's a really nice article by Lewis Ayers on the soul and the reading of scripture in, in De Lubach's work. De Lubach recovers this approach to transformation of the soul, and Ayers writes that people who are engaging De Lubach's work haven't really paid attention to this. Um, and we need to pay attention to it, uh, but uh, we don't need to repristinate some ancient notion of the soul. Um, we need an understanding of human persons that really utilizes all the tremendous resources in ancient reflection on human personhood, but that is adequate to our own situation. Uh, and so chapter four of the book provides an, an account of the human context of Christian scripture. So that, that's really interesting. So, so in, if I may summarize, so in, in brief then, right, the answer to the question, what is this a technology for? The answer is to make us human, yeah. um, to humanize us. Mm-hmm. And so then, so then the next question then is, uh, well, okay, well, normatively speaking, what is the human? Yeah. Um, and, and that's part of what's interesting to me about that, just given my own preoccupations. Is that uh, that is in in Lonergan's sense of the, his his earlier work on Thomas, that is a, um, a a sort of that that's where systematic theology turns to philosophy, to mm-hmm. to look both for uh, categories but also for an, uh, for analogs. Yeah, right. And so because the question of uh, now at least facially the question okay normatively what is the human is a human sized question to ask and answer. Mm-hmm. Right. What is God up to? What is God doing through this instrument, through this technology of the Bible? Um, to know that adequately, uh, y- you would need to be God. Um, yeah. But uh, I mean, you can know inadequately and analogically and stuff, but 
but to know that completely, you would have to, to be God to know what God is up to. Um, but the question, what is the human? And, uh, and normatively speaking, that is, again, at least facially, that is a human-sized question to ask and answer. And so a philosophical question. Yeah, it definitely is. Um, but, it's, but it's also a theological question as well, right? So you said Scripture, is, is, its purpose is to make us human, but its purpose is also to make us divine. Uh, its purpose is also God's deifying work. Um, it, is, it doesn't just serve the purpose of helping to heal us uh, where we have, have failed to live into what it means to be fully human. Um, it's not just Sanan's uh, healing. Uh, it is also Elevon's elevating, uh, transforming our perspective so that it is that it doesn't just um, stay content with the questions uh, that are questions about humanity in its own structures and norms. Right. Uh, well, and and so there, then, right. The philosophy is not just providing uh, sort of uh, adjunct categories, but it's also providing analogs. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. because whatever we're elevated to. Um, is going to like almost like like almost definitionally is going to be analogous, right? Because if it's still us mm-hmm. been healed and elevated, then yeah. there's going to be an analogical relationship between the what's been restored by healing and that to which we've been elevated. Yeah, that's like like uh, like that's just exactly how analogy works. Yes. Um. Yeah. Right. So so very good. So um and so we're doing and so we're doing systematic theology. So so um so good. So so let's. So then, so then there seems to me an obvious next question, which is, well, hold on, time out. You just described this uh, messy, complicated, highly particular historical process by which this technology was produced and promulgated and passed on and translated and so on and so forth. Um, and, but you're also making this uh, sort of uh, highfalutin claim about how this technology and all its multifaceted uh, aspects and elements um, is supposed to affect this, again, uh, lofty thing of not just healing us, but of elevating us and elevating us to what? Well, it's a theological claim. So to God, mm-hmm. um, how, how's that going to work? Yeah, well, it's going to be messy too. Um, so it's uh so a couple couple things that I need to say in response to that. The first one is that if you're a Christian, you're committed to these texts, whether you like it or not. <laughs> um, and and I think also you're constitutively committed to to certain theological judgments about what they are. Can you rattle through those one more time? You have a good yeah. list of three of them. Yeah. So uh, scripture is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Uh, scripture is the Word of God written. Um, and scripture is useful for God's transformative work in, in human history. Great, thanks. Um, so it's one thing to hold those again, and another thing to, to understand them. So, so because I'm working within a perspective of committed Christian faith, full disclosure, this is, you know, uh, the we're questions. Asking, that, we're asking what is the Christian Bible? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, the questions that I'm asking and, and, and answering, I, I'm doing it in, in a, um, you know, within the canons of, of scholarship in an academic sense, but they're existential 
questions, other personal questions, other questions of my own faith. Uh, and so given these commitments, um, the question then is, well, uh, what does this mean and what does this look like, given that scripture is messy, so to speak, in, in these ways I've, I've described it as being messy? Well, um, the text and the history of the text are what they are, whether we're paying attention to them and understanding them and coming to true judgments about them or not. Um, but it's possible to be attentive and intelligent and reasonable uh, and responsible with respect to the, to the text. And it's also very, not just possible, but um, painfully common in Christian history to not do those things with respect to the text. Uh, but I don't think any Christian you would ask, I hope not, would say, what you really need to do is just not pay attention to Scripture and don't try to understand it and don't try to come to truthful judgments about it and don't be responsible in your handling of it. And everybody wants, uh, wants to, to read well. Um, as, as I heard you say in a seminar once, against such things there is no law. Yeah, there is no law. Yeah, that, that makes it into the, into the book. Oh, good. Um, and, uh, and so uh, I think there's a, a significant confusion uh, for a lot of Christians in the wake of the Protestant Reformation and the crises over authority that come from the Reformation uh, about what to do with Scripture. Um, you know, uh, everybody uh, assumes it's authoritative. Um, but what's authoritative about it is not um, that it says certain things that are already out there now in the world. And all we need to do is just get those things from out there into ourselves. Uh, what's authoritative about it is that um, it mediates the truthfulness of God's work in the world. Um, it is uh, a fitting instrument of that mediation. Uh, so what is God doing? Uh, well, uh, to, to uh, allude to a text uh, that both Lonergan and, and De Lubach loved, uh, God is reconciling all things in Christ. Um, scripture mediates uh, that history. Um, it it communicates, it, if we engage it attentively, um, it can do that work of, of introducing us to this, to this divine perspective of God's work. Um, but if we refuse to pay attention, we're, we're never going to get there. We refuse to, to raise questions, we're never going to get there. Um, but it, me, it can mediate all kinds of other things. And I think in divine providence, it, it does. It doesn't just give us... Um, a horizon for understanding God's economic work, God's work in history. Um, it also can um, be a means through which God gives us ourselves. Um, and, and what I mean by that is that um, we can discover what human historicity is, is all about through attending to the text. Uh, we can discover 
that we are experiencers, understanders, deciders, lovers, uh, through engaging the text. And that's something that God intends. Uh, we can discover that human beings are historically located, that our cultures are developing, um, that there are as many cultures as, as there have been different peoples in different places throughout human history. Um, and we have really interesting access to some of those ancient ones when we read, read the texts. Um, and so scripture uh, can mediate uh, all these realities about what it means to be human to us. Um, and if we think about that for a while, then we might want to take responsibility for our own deciding, our own acting uh, within those constraints within history. Um, so scripture can mediate it, this divine perspective of God's work. Um, it's a fitting instrument of that mediation. Um, it's not just something that I'm committed to in an abstract sense. It's something that I think is historically demonstrable. Um, but it can also mediate to us the truth of our contingent historicity, our being specific people in specific places and specific times. It can also mediate to us, uh, and it's very important, this is an important part, aspect of God's pedagogy through it. It can mediate to us uh, the good, that which is truly good. It can orient us towards that which is, is truly good instead of our limited um, self-centered uh, desires, values, perspectives, instead of our group's perspectives. Um, and, um, and this is what it is, is for. Uh, again, uh, if, you, if you pay attention to the history of Christian interpretation, this is, this is evident. Christians have come to this, this text and through measuring up to it, are changed. Um, but the change has, the, the, the parameters of that change have norms uh, and they, they're ordered and orderable. Um, and uh, it would really be good to have some order personally um, to, to think about those those changes. Yeah, I, I, I want to take this as an opportunity in the, the backstretch here to, to circle back to this, what I sort of called the high ambitions of the work, right? Because it seems to me that what you were just talking about, um, mediation to us of, of God's work in history, the mediation of us to ourselves, the mediation of, um, of the, the good to our apprehensions and to our appropriation of ourselves in a history that is governed by God's providence. Um, that all has something, and I can't quite put my finger on exactly what, so I'm hoping maybe you can, you can close the loop for me. That has something to do with the integration of the th three approaches to scripture you outlined at the, at, at the top, um, at, at a, a theological interpretation of scripture, uh, at a historical critical interpretation of scripture, and a, a contextual liberationist uh, approach to scripture. Um, Indeed, so, it does. So, so how does that work? How, how how does it serve? How does this approach that you're outlining serve that function to integrate those approaches and maybe to to um, chasten or augment them as needed? Yeah. So, um, 
so you're you're very right to to pick up on that um it's in, it's intentional um so how does it how does it serve to integrate them well um in a certain respect they can't be integrated to the extent that each of them pursues legitimate questions that should be asked and answered about the text um you can't um the questions have their legitimacy separate from from other questions but they all need to be asked in order to really measure up to the text in order to really understand what god intends it for all the questions need to be asked and all of them need to be answered to the extent that we're able to answer them um, and so i see historical criticism as attending to those questions about the particularity of human cultures, the particularity of ancient history, the distance uh, between uh, human perspectives about what humanity is, about, about what God is. Um, historical critical work raises and answers questions well about uh, development. Um, and um, those are questions that we need to ask and answer to be what God intends us to be. Uh, the theological questions, um, theological approaches, uh, ask and answer questions about uh, divine revelation. Uh, has God uh, entered into uh, human culture, into human meaning making? If you're a Christian, then you're committed to, to belief that God has. Uh, and so the theological uh, approaches to the text raise those sorts of questions and, and, and engage the um, the witness of, of both testaments of, of scripture with reference to those sorts of, of issues. Um, and then the contextual liberationist approaches uh, ask the question about um, God's love for and redemptive liberative work on behalf of people today. Uh, if God is reconciling all things in Christ, um, that's something that, um, you know, from a Christian perspective, is nascently complete in, in Christ's work in the first century. Um, but uh, it's also not complete uh, until Christ's return. Um, and it's not something that God is just taking a break on right now, waiting to, you know, re-up sometime in the future. Um, God is working in communities redemptively now, um, and God shows us what God is like, um, and shows us what what kinds of human sinful uh, uh, choices and perspectives and cultures are go against God's intentions. Um, and so those those liberative contextual approaches raise those sorts of questions, ask those sorts of questions, and answer them. Um, and um, and so each each of those approaches, I think, uh, can do an exceptionally uh, helpful service. And and they do. People operating in those uh, do do the do the service of helping us ask and answer these distinctive questions well. Um, but they have their own legitimacy. Each area has its own legitimacy. Um, and uh, 
And the, the, the challenge is not to pick the right one so we can get scripture right, which is how a lot of people think about things. The challenge is for us to be different, to be the different kind of people that can ask and answer all these questions, which God intends for us to ask and answer. And that is God's pedagogy through scripture. Bible is going to stay what it is, whether we're changed or not. Um, but the kinds of changes God intends for us um, come out of these distinctive questions. We cannot be the same if we start asking them. And that's what God wants. God wants to make us more what we are. That's a, that's a really helpful, the, 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 the pedagogy analogy, I think, is, is really helpful um, to the extent that anyone who's in a classroom realizes, I can't just give my students the answers. Um, because if I just give them the answers, the stuff I get back is garbled because I don't understand what the answers mean or how they relate to each other. I have to get them to both ask, ask a set of questions and then recognize these, this information that they're encountering as answers to those questions. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. and so, and so to use, to use pedagogy as an analogy, I think is really helpful in that respect, that it's not just God's intention that we should receive this information but that we should um, encounter this information as an answer to a set of questions God also intends we ask. I think that's mm-hmm. really helpful. Yeah. And that's the work that God does. That, that scripture is, is just an incredibly fitting instrument of, of that work, if you're paying attention. Um, so then, so, so, so they, they have this legitimacy and their integration is in the sort of needfulness of all of these, all of these sort of nexes of questions. Um, so then what, what kinds of, uh, chase, I've used the language of chastening and augmentation. That's not yours. That's mine. But, um, wh- where, where do you see this book directing, the, uh, engagement with the Christian Bible, with Christian scripture beyond where it is presently? Uh, well, I hope it can help, um, folks operating under those different rubrics of historical, critical, or theological, or contextual, to, to recognize what it is that they're doing when they're doing it. Um, so that they can take responsibility for that. Um, but I hope it will also press people to, to recognize there are legitimate questions to be asked about Scripture that their respective approaches do not, uh, as a matter of principle, and even in a relatively legitimate sense that they do not ask right um you know there's this this really kind of bizarre uh phenomenon of uh bible-centered protestants going to bible college um you know just they, they have memorized scripture you know they were in bible bowl they um you know are on fire for jesus and uh, they take their Greek and their Hebrew, and they take exegetical courses in both Testaments, and they, they fall more in love with Scripture. Um, and, uh, and then they realize that that work doesn't answer all their theological questions, and they become disillusioned, and they become Bart Ehrman. Um, it, it just happens over and over and over and over again. Um, but the sorts of questions that that really important work raises of the text are not all the questions that there are. And in fact, there are questions um, that need to be raised theologically 
about God, uh, about humanity and human history um, that, um, that need to be asked and answered just to understand scripture from a, from a human perspective, right? This is testimony, um, right? We would not have it apart from the religious faith of, of the apostles and uh, everybody through the early history of Christianity passing this stuff on. You won't understand this stuff if you, were, if you prescind from questions about theological commitment. But if you're a Christian, why would you want to totally prescind from questions about theological commitment? Right? People get into biblical scholarship often because of, of, their, of their faith, of, their, of, of these sorts of questions. And, um, and so there are these further legitimate questions that can't be asked and answered adequately solely within the purview of what did Paul mean in the first century. Um, and so the, 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 there's a chastening of, of historical criticism. I'm, you know, of course, it, it should should keep happening. Um, it should it should go on um, uh, with uh, focus, intentionality, all the resources available. Um, people need need to do this work. It's important work, but it's not all the work. So there are theological approaches, on the other hand, which pretend like none of those historical questions matter at all. But wouldn't it just be better if it was the 13th century again and um, we read the Bible like Thomas Aquinas? No, it wouldn't actually. <laughs> that, that wouldn't be better. Um, I need to think of, I need to think of a, a, an a alternative version. I have a version of this uh, when it comes to natural law ethics which is people who want to legislate according to 13th century science should have to yeah. treat their children with 13th century medicine. Yeah. There's right. Gotta be a, there's gotta be a biblical studies uh, equivalent for that. Yeah. There's, but well, you could think of a lot of, uh, a lot of them, but yeah, we, we don't want to go back to the 13th century or the fifth century, fourth century, second century, or even the first century. Amen. <laughs> yeah. Um, Can you imagine having children before indoor plumbing guys? <laughs> and all three of us go, uh, come on. You, you've had to do, I hope you've had to do your children's laundry. Well, that's true. Too, yeah. oh, I was yeah. thinking more approximately to the having of the children, but yes, quite. So. Yeah. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, the human population has doubled in the past, what, 70 years. Um, I mean, it's just unfathomable to me to know that there are people who have this commitment that, that it really would just be better if it was the Middle Ages and we were all dying of the bubonic plague. I mean, Ooh, that does sound nice. But... No, 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 thanks. Um, but but beyond just like there's that there's that desire to go back. Um, there's a desire to to uh, to put a cover on those sorts of questions and what they reveal to us about human culture. Right? There is no one singular biblical worldview in Scripture. Um, there are as many perspectives in scripture as there are authors, and we don't even know how many human authors there are. And they didn't think about authorship the way that we do. Um, and even when we're thinking about modern authors singularly producing some kind of work of genius, that's just ridiculous in and of itself because we're all embedded in community. And if any of us is going to do anything well, it's going to be because we've depended on other people who have, who have helped us to where we are. 
write a dissertation, you'll find that out. Right, exactly. And, um, and so there's the, this theological approach that just wants to, to go back, it ignores all this. But there are real significant questions if you're asking about the historicity of human culture and change in human history um, that you realize, well, we, we find guidance. Um, we always will find guidance through our engagement with Scripture on, on difficult moral questions. But um, just saying, well, this is what the Bible says is, is just not an, op- an open option. Um, and um, you know, Paul, Paul's perspective develops, you know, you will not find, um, you will not find the word Trinity in, in the text of scripture. You will not find homoousios of, of, or consubstantial of the same nature, father and the son are of the same nature. Um, so some people say, well, you know, that's great. So we should be Unitarians, right? Because it's not in the Bible. Um, but that just totally ignores that that questions come up in history because God has made human beings as we are, um, and if we ignore them or pretend like they're not real questions, um, that's going to mean authenticity for us. Um, so there are all sorts of questions about historicity and development um, and challenging moral moral issues that. Um, that many folks in the theological interpretation camp just don't, I think, don't do justice to. Um, And then finally, in contextual theologies, um, uh, you know, I, 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 in some respects, I hesitate to offer any critique um, because of, because I affirm that they're just, they are absolutely legitimate and needed. Um, But, but again, Maybe, there. Are, go some, ahead. Some, yeah, I was going to say, but but I mean, it doesn't have to all be critique, too, right? So there can be some sense of um, the. So for but but also there, there can be some way in which the 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 work of integration you're suggesting can itself be one of the the calls to development, right? Mm-hmm. That there could that there could be a greater dialogue between the various disciplines. Yeah. Um, in a way that could be uh, enriching to them. Well, yes, because it would be a dialogue between relatively authentic people who have done their hard work, right? Really wrestled with the questions, and so are changed through that work, right? Uh, and so, to, so to the extent that we think of these three uh, as as not just disciplinary uh, divisions or not just methodological divisions, but uh, often as sort of political camps mm-hmm. uh, being opposed to one another. Um, that there's a kind of uh, well, in, in Lonergan's sort of Lonergan's sort of technical sense, right? Uh, a group bias, mm-hmm. uh, not just a privileging of my group, but in fact a fearfulness that if I will admit the questions being posed by the existence and approaches of the other groups, um, that will that will somehow uh, pose a, a threat to the the cohesion and solidarity of my political camp. Um, so that I, I wonder if, uh, even if, even if in all three camps, sort of everything that's happening is right and good, if there is, uh, if there's a, uh, a group bias at work, if there's a sense that the other camp isn't somehow threatening to mine and, you know, uh, in resource scarcity, that kind of thing can come up. Um, 
then uh, you know you're going to suppress certain questions and so not arrive at certain insights and um, miss opportunities for responsible and loving action and so on and so forth. I mean, is that is that seem credible to you as a way of treating it? Yeah, yeah, I think so. Yep, that's helpful. All right. Uh, so we're we're a little over our usual time here, but um, I want to give you a chance. If there's any last any last things, I want to give you the last word on it, and then we'll uh, and then we'll wrap up. Anything you want to want to add, Joe? Well, I, I don't really think I have uh, any more to add. I really appreciate the opportunity to come and talk about this stuff with you guys. Uh, reminds me of when we were together in Milwaukee. So, not Robin, but very good to meet you as well. <laughs> Thank you for your conversation, questions, and reflection. That's kind of why we did this Been thing. You know? our, 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 <laughs> well, we're glad to have you, and we really appreciate it. You know, this, the, the reason we did this thing is we figured, you know, even if nine people listen to it and three of them are our parents, uh, we would at least get together on Saturday mornings and get to chat. Uh, yeah. enjoy so much. So. Um, well, thank you, Joe. Again, the book is called Divine Scripture and Human Understanding, A Systematic Theology of the Christian Bible. It's out from University of Notre Dame Press. And like I said, go to the show notes and there'll be a, a link and probably some kind of coupon code for a, a discount. Joe said he's mm-hmm. able to yep. work that out for us. So um, thank you one last time. Uh, if you like what we're up to here and you'd be willing to help support a little bit, we have, we have minor overhead costs, but we do need a little help covering them. We have a Patreon where you could donate as little as a dollar a month to help us with that. It's patreon.com slash systematically. If you want to send us an email, make a comment, ask us a question, whatever, uh, systematicallypodcast at gmail.com. You can also catch us on the Twitters at systematicpod. If you would do us a favor, uh, we have a lovely listener base. I hear from you sometimes on Twitter and other places. It's really, it's really great. If you would be willing to help us uh, expand the listenership, giving us a rating on your podcasting uh, portal of choice, uh, making a comment, those things would all be really helpful. They're helpful in the sort of algorithms by which uh, they automate uh, suggestions to people. So if you would take a little bit of time, if you're enjoying the show to do that, we'd really appreciate it. Um, our intro and outro music, as always, is track 14 off of Ghost 2 by Nine Inch Nails. And uh, thank you, Ryan. Thank you, Robin. Thank you, especially Joe. We'll talk to you next week. Go out there and be attentive. Adios. Adios.